All right, everyone. Well, welcome to the uh, Utopian Idiots podcast. Uh, Jonathan and I are here, and we're also happy to be joined by a special guest. Uh, we have Dr. John Cutterback here with us. And Dr. Cutterback is a professor of philosophy at Christendom College, where he has taught for 25 years. Uh, Christendom College is my alma mater. And uh, I, I know I had uh, Dr. Cutterback for several classes. I think the, the, the famous philosophy of human nature class. Um, Currently, uh, Dr. Cutterback, in addition to, to, to teaching at Christendom, he also lectures widely on a, on a variety of topics, including virtue, fatherhood, friendship, and household. And his professional writings have appeared in a bunch of different journals, and he's also published a book. I would recommend strongly his article in First Things called Restoring the Household, which is a, a great piece. Um, and he also blogs and, and, uh, and has some free courses at Lifecraft. Uh, where he applies ancient wisdom to life today. And if you want to see that online, it's life-craft.org. That's life-craft.org. He publishes a short article every Wednesday, I believe, on very much the, the issues that he covers are pretty much bang on with what we do at Utopian Idiots as well. A lot of it, uh, you know, a lot about the, the, the slow, meaningful things in life, family, faith, friendship, uh, farming, household, uh, and all that jazz. Uh, he's here with us today to talk about Wendell Berry. Uh, he published an article, I think it was in 2012, called Renewing Husbandry, Wendell Berry, Aristotle, and Thomas Aquinas on Economics. That, uh, that was in Nova et Vetera. I encourage you to check that out as well. But he's also just a huge fan of Wendell Berry. And over the past summer, Jonathan and I have just been devouring uh, Berry's fiction. And it's also worth pointing out that Will Pemberton, uh, the third uh, founder of Utopian Idiots, who sadly passed away last year, was a huge fan of Wendell Berry. Um, in fact, he, I read uh, the, uh, uh, oh gosh, what's his, sorry, it's just past my, the, uh, the main work on farming, the, the Unsettling of America. Thank you. The, the, the Unsettling of America. And uh, I read that a few years ago on a, from a copy that Will bought for me because uh, he had been reading it. And uh, Dr. Cutterback, you, you don't know Will, but he uh, a number of years ago, he actually went out to the East Coast and did start a small market farm. He was, uh, he was raising cattle and, and um, um, unfortunately, he passed away before it could really come to fruition. Uh, but so this is a very... Wendell Berry friendly crowd here, uh, and uh, Dr. Cutterback's been reading Wendell Berry for a long time, and so uh, we're just going to dive in. and And for those who don't know, we'll first just basically look at, at some of the the basic facts about Wendell Berry's life. And so, uh, uh, Dr. Cutterback, take it away. Just let us know who Wendell Berry is. Well, um, you know, it's hard to characterize uh, Wendell Berry and to put him in a in a, in a neat category. Um, you know, he's he's an author. He writes fiction. Um, he and he writes a lot more than fiction. You know, he was once upon a time a professor. Um, you know, how would he identify himself? Probably primarily as a farmer. So it's it's always kind of one of those funny things when I'm introducing, I'm trying to tell someone who Wendell Berry is, someone who hasn't already bumped into him or read him a little bit, listened to him. It's it's there's there's no easy one-liner on him. I also call him a social critic. Um, you know, he's a philosopher of sorts, but then again, he's not a trained philosopher. He would never himself call himself a philosopher. So was he an academic? Yes. Um, but that wasn't his main main thing, though um, he has very much made a name for himself in writing. And I think it's particularly remarkable 
um, the way that his he has gained real notoriety for kind of both sides of the divide in writing, fiction and nonfiction. And, uh, you know, some people have probably really only read the one side and aren't, aren't familiar with the other. Probably more have read his fiction and his essays, but, you know, I'm not sure of that. Um, one kind of fun anecdote, um, I've been teaching using his, especially nonfiction in class for years. And several years after one of my students graduated, he reported to me that he finally picked up the fiction of Wendelberry. And he said, ah, now reading the fiction, I finally understand what he was talking about in those essays. And so there, there is a real kind of interweaving. They very much go together. And if you want to get to know one Barry, you really need to read both. Mm. He's probably one. Is he still alive? Yes, he's still alive. It's pretty easy for me to remember his age because of all my father. Yes, he, he just he just turned eighty eight. He just he just he just turned eighty eight. And he's got a, and he's got three books coming up this year, despite that fact. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> So yes, indeed. That's the, the, the identical. My father's past is the identical age of my father. So that's, mm. uh, that stays, that stays with me. And, and so how did you come across Barry yourself? You know, I, I, I late in life, um, did I find, uh, Wendell Barry. I, uh, it wasn't until I was a young professor, mm. um, that a fellow professor of mine, a colleague here at Christendom, uh, recommended the unsettling of America. Mm. And so I did start to read um, those kind of social essays. And uh, I immediately was drawn to the way that he, with real clarity and force, articulates key principles of, one could say, an agrarian worldview. Mm. You know, th- th- that I think is kind of a thin way of saying it. Because honestly, it's about a lot more than simply being agrarian. It's a lot deeper than that. Um, but that's one kind of simple way. You know, people who are interested in agrarian issues will certainly find in him one of the foremost voices in the last several decades, something of an inheritor of the American uh, Southern uh, rural tradition, the Southern agrarians. Uh, not that he would necessarily always be on the exact same page as they are, but it's it is certainly in that tradition. So I was introduced to his to his nonfiction. Uh, immediately f- had this experience that a lot of others I know have also, of oh my goodness, yes, that here here's someone saying this in a clear way, expressing things that you were kind of starting to have a sense of in your heart or were wondering about. And here's a man with kind of calm confidence is just. Is, is, is laying it forth in a very rational way. Mm. So that, that was my first introduction. Maybe you can elaborate on, uh, you know, you said certain things just spoke to you. What, what are some of the big ideas? You know, agrarian, like you say, there's a lot that can fall under yeah. that. Under that. And, and it certainly doesn't give a sense of just the, the richness of his, of his worldview, which seems to touch on everything. How would you summarize some of the big ideas, either the ones that spoke to you in particular or, or that he just champions in general? Yeah, that's, you know, John, that's a very tough question. I hope over our time here, that will become a little bit more clear, maybe from a couple of different angles. Um, I could kind of go philosophical here and say, I, I say to my students, again, though he is not a philosopher, 
he has captured um, what in general, I think philosophers try to do. They try to understand the principles of kind of what's driving life, the society in which we live, and maybe what principles have been set aside or what principles, what alternative principles might give a different approach. Mm. So I, I'd say the thing that's particularly characteristic is his descriptions of what we might call an, an, the industrial context and how life has changed. And, and here, this is what his fiction is also so powerful in doing, right? I, I mean, his, his you know, the, 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 two, uh, the two big ones, Anna Coulter and Jaber Crow, of, of people whose lives, one a man, one a woman, whose lives span that time kind of across the 20th century, where we saw these most dramatic changes happen socially, culturally, economically, especially because of kind of the industrial economic, quote, progress. So he's very much an observer and then commenter on, you know, was this good? Are, are these changes, is it um, something that we want to go along with? Is this true progress? And so, I mean, I'd say, you know, from 30,000 feet, those are the questions that particularly if others are starting to ask, like, hey, what happened to community life? What happened to villages? What happened to a sense of responsibility? What happened to a sense of belonging and people knowing where they're from? You know, there's a number of different ways that you can say that. These are the kinds of things that are his hallmarks. that when you read, you say, ah, yeah, you, you identify with it. That's what I was feeling. That's what I was missing. Hmm. If a few minutes ago you said something where you said uh, you know he 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 succeeded on both sides, and then you said poetry um, and fi or fiction and 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 uh, essays and and, and nonfiction, and it, where I thought you were going to say um, is that he succeeded in speaking to both sides of the political aisle, which is one of the most fascinating things about Wendell Berry. Uh, I I know. For instance, I have conservative friends who view Barry as a liberal, <laughs> and 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 then there are many liberal people I know who would certainly, you know, and this comes through, I think, strongly in his fiction, uh, where you know, particular family and religion plays such an important role. Who would view him as fundamentally a, a conservative, and he he seems to be this rare figure who's kind of like gone right right up the the ideal ideological center and, and has uh, you know sympathetic uh, people on both sides. Maybe maybe speak to that and why why you think that would be the case. Yeah, well, well, first of all, I'm going to give you an anecdote that is was just really very dramatic. When um, I lived in Arlington, Virginia, uh, when I was in grad school, and um, I got to know the county very well. It is, by and large, a very, quote, liberal county, uh, very close to D.C., the capital. And um, several years after I was gone and I was teaching here at Christendom, we saw announced that Wendell Berry was invited by the Arlington County Public Library to give a lecture. So, oh my goodness, this is a great opportunity. We're going to, you know, I'm going to get together and group and go to this. It was absolutely wild. <laughs> it, it, it was, I'm, I'm serious. It, it was, it was crazy. The, the, all of central Arlington was jammed mm. with people trying to get into this library. And they, you know, it got to the point where there were police outside just turning cars away. Nope, don't even try to park anywhere near here. You're never going to get in here. And I had brought my wife and a couple of children uh, and, and students. 
we we ended up being incredibly blessed. We were able to um, sneak in, as it were, at the end, not sneak, but they actually took us up front because we were willing to sit on the ground in front of the podium. So we're in a room that's just absolutely jammed full. First time I ever saw Wendell Berry in the flesh. He comes walking in, a tall, slender man who makes quite an impression. He just, he exudes gentlemen. In, in, in every way. I mean, it's just, it's just really remarkable. And the crowd just went crazy. I mean, crazy. And the, and the person who was introducing him said, I forget this. He said, Mr. Barry, clearly you are a rock star. And, <laughs> and you should have seen Mr. Barry's his, there was this visible flinch kind of like of this pain when he was likened to a rock star. He just kind of went, Oh, and, and, and had no response to that. In, in, in any case, um, that room was full of every type. And, 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 and so why? Okay. Well, it, you know, there's a lot going on, John, there. I'll say this. This is a you know, great topic. You and I have talked about this before. The, you know, the, the American slash Canadian, and Canadians are a little different. I can speak to the American much better. Political uh, uh, divide is an odd one. Right, what you call conservative and liberal, actually, um, you know, kind of it, it it imposes itself on the map of people in, in a certain strange way. Many of us experience this. You know, Rod Dreher brought this out in a big way when he did his crunchy cons thing of, hey, mm. there's some conservatives who have principles that have been utterly abandoned by conservatives and are more being championed by liberals. Well, this speaks very much to Wendell Berry. Right. Hmm. Wendell Berry is crunchy. Right? And when you slice it, I mean, he's let, let, wait, let's use a not very helpful, but nonetheless, it says something word. He's crunchy. And so that speaks to a, a, a lot of people who are trying to do the more traditional family cultural thing. But at the same time, he's uh, going along with that. He has a profound sense of the environment connected with that. He has a profound sense of kind of the rights of workers and justice towards them. And let's and let's face it, at least in the American political divide, it tends to be the case that conservatives tend to not be interested so much in the environment. They tend not to be speaking about kind of the rights of workers and equity for workers. Right. So so that's how right there you see that, that in that kind of interesting mix that I am convinced that those issues do go well together. I don't think. It's Wendell Berry who's being more eclectic. I think the fact that his convictions cross those lines show more about something being askew in the lines than being askew in him. Yeah, I've always, yeah, no, just on on that point, and I wonder what you think about this because what I've always felt about Wendell Berry versus you know the average American conservative and especially the average Canadian conservative is that uh, typically they just you know they they camp out on whatever the most recent status quo was. So you see them slowly but surely drifting because they just want to conserve what the status quo is. Whereas Wendell Berry is one of the few people I've ever read who absolutely knows precisely what it is he wants to conserve and defends it 
with all of the philosophical and literary powers at his disposal. And I think th- like that's at least what makes him so attractive to me is that he when when he says he's a conservative, he is speaking about a very specific set of rooted things about a concept of home that isn't a place. And they did this uh, documentary on him where they interviewed his daughter and went to his farm called Come and See, which I thought was a brilliant title. And and one of the one of the his daughter actually said, my father has always said uh, that if you want to be home, just stop moving for a while. You know, put put down roots. So in that way, his vision of conservatism is accessible uh, to everyone. What do you think about that definition of, of of him as a conservative? Yeah, Jonathan, I really like I really like where you're going with that. That, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, he he has a very principled, coherent view that 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 does not intend to move with the times. Right? It, it's based upon, a, for sure, a certain life experience. That's right. That's something else that you get a sense. He has seen, and this connects with the come and see, he has seen up close a certain kind of rich human life. And having seen it, he also has a gift for feeling it and expressing it. And so in his, in his fiction, especially, you just, his characters are so, so alive, so real. And they, they speak to something I think deep within us, it's funny, it, to many people, it might speak to something they've heard of or seen before of a kind of, you know, quote, old fashioned richness. At the same time, it functions in this very powerful way. And this is this particularly interests me of people who haven't particularly seen this kind of thing. Mm. They, through him, are able to see and feel a way that life can be. And so that, I mean, that, that there's just, a, there's a real richness there that I think it kind of endures. And that's very much, I think, at the root of your point. Yeah. And that, and that functions even for, for those of us, I think, who, who, who've always had some version of the Barry-esque ideal. And I would certainly count myself in that crowd, but I find, and, and Jonathan, you reminded me that I said this recently, that you know, reading Barry's fiction, he, he makes me love the things that I know I should love and hate the things that I know I, sh- I should hate in the sense of converting this head knowledge of what my principles are and what I actually desire and then making it heart knowledge. He, he, he really presents the good um, in a way that is the furthest thing from saccharine or, or you know, um, uh, just sh- you know, shallow. I so often does. I think in a, in a lot of you know Christian literature, you get this thing like, "This is what you should like," but it just doesn't look that great. <laughs> Where yeah. whereas whereas Barry, there's such a depth in his, in his presentation of, of of the good life. <clears throat> John, pardon me. I'm going to follow up on that by saying, um, precisely where you might have thought you would find the saccharine, sentimental nostalgic um presentation you don't Mm -hmm. there's there's he has a gift of of presenting things in i don't know how to say it other than it 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 feels very real and so uh you know for many people who when we have these intuitions these senses of gosh we wish our life could be more like this or wish our life could be more like this and you express that to other people, particularly if then you connect that to something with the past, very commonly, you are told you're just being nostalgic, right? And you're thinking that the past 
is not what it was. You're thinking the past was better. You're thinking it was all, you know, they all just had this wonderful fellowship and, and there were no problems. And, and, and the thing is, it, it sometimes you yeah, want to overdo it, but you want to just say, you know, would you just read a Wendell Berry novel? And see, <laughs> this, 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 isn't, this isn't nostalgia. You're going to get a look at the way life was in, in, in its complexity. He doesn't, he, you know, th there's plenty of ugliness in there. There's plenty of things to point out. You know, 1930s Kentucky is not utopia. You know, <laughs> that's for sure. It's not Shangri-La. Like, yeah, man, I want to have everything be just like the 1930s in rural Kentucky. But rather through your experience of, among other things, say, 1930s Kentucky, you you see something more transcendent. You get a sense of a kind of way that people can live in community that can show up in a number of different contexts. It show up showed up in 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 many different human contexts throughout history in ancient Greece, in medieval England, in you know even post revolutionary France. There, there's I mean certain things here. Are, are you know kind of transcendent and enduring even while accidentals change and you feel like somehow through the accidentals you get it you get it you get it, this rich me I, I want to uh, speak to that to get your thoughts on something that I've been thinking about. We were all just talking about the memory of old Jack and, and there was a, a critic uh, quite recently who, who wrote a scathing condemnation of Barry because she actually said the opposite of what you said, which is that even when there uh, things go wrong in Wendell Berry's novels, they're all uh, bathed in the warm glow of nostalgia, which I didn't pick up with the cancer and the murder and the alcoholism uh, and all those sorts of things. And what I find so interesting about the memory of old Jack is you have essentially a novel long tragedy of a, of a marriage that fundamentally failed and he manages to inhabit their internal life to such an extent that it, it does totally transcend its time because the differences between men and women and how they're communicating in that novel, like you can see the mistakes they're making and you also can kind of see how they're going to unfold. But Today, when a marriage breaks up like that, you would see, you know, a divorce and often in our very atomized culture, there would be no safety net. You wouldn't have an extended family. You wouldn't be living where you all grew up. Whereas even here, the tragedy of this failed marriage unfolds against the backdrop of so many other interlocking people. And so this divorce doesn't have to, this failed marriage doesn't have to be the end of of their lives because he's still part of the membership. And so what struck me was that this community is actually a bulwark against uncle peach, the drunkard, or when Elton Penn dies of cancer. Uh, but all the, you know, all of his neighbors make sure his wife doesn't have to move off the farm. And so that when tragedy strikes, if it strikes inside the context of a community, it doesn't have to be the end of your life as it so often is now in the rest of the, an atomized culture. Jonathan, I think that's a, a, an outstanding point. And, um, I, I want to run with it and 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 push it a little bit further. And this will bring up something that you might say is a little controversial or an interesting aspect of Wendell Berry, and that is Christianity question mark. Right? This is this is an ongoing and interesting thing, uh, question issue about about Wendell Berry. But I I it really struck me as you were saying what you were saying there, I, that that uh, that criticism, I I, I see it. Whoever that critic was who said, and even as things go wrong, I'm paraphrasing, tell me if I'm missing the, 
that everything is still bathed in the warm glow of nostalgia. Honestly, I think this is absolutely key. That critic, in my view, is mistaking the warm glow of nostalgia with the warm glow of a fundamental confidence in the goodness of reality. Mm. Mm. And that's a very, very different thing. That is not nostalgia. Mm. See, this, it really strikes me here as it, thinking about that criticism because it's, it, uh, others who maybe don't have whatever reason, not, not accusing, pointing a finger, but if one doesn't have a conviction in the fundamental goodness of reality, then Wendell, then the books, I'm thinking Jaber Crow, Hannah Coulter, in, in, in both of them, the kind of hope that remains in both of those characters through their suffering, it becomes incomprehensible. I mean, the, the, the most powerful parts in my mind in those books is where both of those characters in their own way recognize and they enunciate. It comes back to love. And this is not in some type of squishy way. I mean, this is, again, this is portrayed in an extremely powerful way. It comes back to kind of fidelity and love and, and, and a confidence. And here I, I say you, you have the interestingness of, of is it a Christian worldview? I mean, one of the things about his writing, and I think this is part of the reason it has a special appeal to many. Sure, there's a certain Christianity implicit. I mean, hey, it's rural Kentucky. You know, obviously there's going to be a certain implicit Christianity. But at the same time, uh, plenty of these characters are not necessarily moving in an explicitly faith-based situation. But they have this, they have, as I put it a moment ago, a fundamental conviction in the goodness of reality in that if you endure, hey, I'll say as a philosopher, I mean, it's kind of like Plato and Aristotle. If you endure in doing what's right, this will always be for the good. The mm. divine, whoever knowing exactly what the divine is, is gonna, it's gonna take care of you as it were, right? So I say this, this, there's, it's really interesting. What exactly is the backdrop of that worldview? But I think Jonathan, that that's the warm glow that is so powerful and you know the aspects of community that you're bringing out there. In certain ways, those communities were rooted in that kind of conviction, even if they didn't enunciate that intellectually. Those communities and their way of life was rooted in a valuation of things in life, where they put certain things higher and certain things lower, right? In in a sense, you might sum up you know our industrial post-industrial context has flipped it. And that's what you get in, for instance, characters, which we, you, we were just talking as a group earlier about old Jack, right? Some of those characters in there are outstanding at presenting the new inverse value system, right? Whether it's running after success, running after money, the different ways that that's presented, that is shown as undermining community. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, is, this is very rich, deep stuff. Yeah, what strikes me and it has struck me for a long time in so much contemporary art in particular, uh, that, that all forms of art, music, uh, 
fiction, novels, movies, um, so often it seems to be motivated by a worldview in which the creators cannot even conceive of the possibility that there might be someone out there who's actually has selfless motivations or that there might actually be a beautiful way of living uh, that's not just fundamentally selfish and and debased there's this just this complete impoverishment of the imagination that if you encounter someone who seems to be good they must be too good to be true that there must be a double motive there right what well, well said john very well said and you know that brings me back to old jack where you know from right from right at the beginning of that book it's a lesser known book so a lot of our uh, listeners here you know, perhaps haven't read it when you first start reading it if you're thinking, oh, we're going to get that nostalgic kind of Wendell Berry where, you know, marriage always, you know, works out. Because of course <laughs> it did. This is the old days, right? You, you, you're, you're going to get a rude awakening uh, in old Jack. But, but at the same time, you, you have the nuance of a character here who does have a moral grounding, who has an incredible and beautiful depths of soul. And he, he, you know, he has certain real convictions. He has an ability to recognize where he's done wrong. He knows how to think about other people and truly give to other people. And, and so, it, again, it smacks of reality. It smacks of, let's say, from a Christian viewpoint, of sin and redemption. Even, you know, just if that's not made theologically explicit, there's, there, there's that kind of richness going on in these characters. And I, I love how you said, John, a, a lack of imagination. Well, you know, reading Wendell Berry can help expand your imagination a little bit on those scores. Mm. Yeah, so there was something I was thinking recently, um, pondering his fiction. You mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, his characters are utterly real. And, and, and so there's, you know, you, you aren't getting these superficial, flattened characters that you sometimes find, particularly in like mission-oriented fiction. Like, oh, I'm going to show you a positive worldview, and then you get these one-dimensional characters. His characters are very three-dimensional, very believable. Um, you, you, when you spend time with them, you really feel you know them. And in fact, um, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the recordings of his novels that are out there now, but there's a recording of Hannah Coulter uh, that is just mm. stunningly good. Uh, the, the, the narrator... you just completely believe that she is Hannah Coulter. Uh, there's a collection of his short stories um, that the, the narrators, he's got this deep Southern uh, Kentucky barit baritone. It's, it's, it's Paul Michael. He reads a few of them and nobody's better. Yeah. Um, and so, so again, utterly real, but it, it also um, struck me recently that they're in a way they're hyper real. When you, when you're in these novels, there's some, there's something almost mythic about them which I find fascinating because the details of the novels and the stories are utterly mundane. Mostly he's just dealing with ordinary people living ordinary lives. You don't get sudden plot twists. You know, you don't get the, the bank robbers coming in. There's no shoot, shootouts. Uh, you, know, the, you know, there's a couple, you know, there's the one murder that happens in one of the short stories, but it's all, it's all so, so rooted. And yet somehow you come away feeling like you've been walking with gods. In, in some way, these people are, are, are bigger than life uh, and they, they embody something that's bigger than themselves. Um, I, I just wonder if that, if that resonates with you. It, it, it does, it does, John. It, and, you know, it's, it's funny, um, particularly as a teacher, uh, you ask yourself questions like this. Well, if I, if I hype up a text too much, 
you know, will that turn people off and make them not want to read it? And, you know, I, to some extent, listening to all of us talk right now, I can imagine certain certain listeners would just be like, <laughs> okay, whatever. I mean, who the heck is this guy? What's the big whoop-de-doo? <laughs> and, you know, you know, John, I, I, um, I just kind of go back to something that we've all been saying. He, he's touching something deep in human nature. I, I, I'm going to go philosophical here. Um, human life is rich. It's really serious. And it's a story. And it's a story of the most profound origins and implications. And the reality is that's the truth. We haven't yet realized how rich and dramatic human life, our own, really is. And Wendell Berry, in his own little imperfect way, but very powerful way helps us enter into the true drama of human life. And, and, and that's why it's, it has a trust transcendent appeal. Mm. I, I wanted to ask you, um, especially because you're a philosopher, a, a bit about moral imagination, because when I finished off his fiction, and there is one more collection of short stories going to be published in November called How It Went, which I, I presume will be the last one because it, it will bring the Port William story almost up to the current day. And so I had all these questions because I noticed that for for one, he weaves the King James Version through every single one of his books and most of his short stories, but he doesn't quote the phrases are just part of the language. Um, so even the language of the membership uh, comes from St. Paul. Uh, Hannah Coulter talks about the membership in whom we live and move and have our being. Uh, there's a magnificent scene where Jaber Crow is looking at the washed out bridge and the flood where he he, he actually speaks with some of the first verses of, uh, of Genesis. But if you don't know those are the genesis, the way it's rendered in the, in the King James version. You don't know. It's just, it's just there. And so I, I, I actually started writing uh, Wendell Berry letters and he's responded to everything I've written him so far, asking him these questions. And I said, um, one, why do you weave the King James version through like this? And, and two, are you worried that it's inaccessible to readers, et cetera? And what he struck said to me was really interesting. He said, the people back then, um, we're actually more literate in many ways than, than we are now. And he's like, their moral imagination was shaped by the King James Bible. And so to write these characters without using the language of the book that had formed them since they were on their, you know, on their parents' knees would be not write them the way that they were and the way that, that a few still are. What do you think like, like that to me, maybe it's just profound because I'm not nearly as smart as he is, but it struck me as very profound because when you look at moral imagination now, it just, it seems to be very lacking and i wonder if that causes the reaction you just referenced of, of people saying like well, who is this guy you know and why are they going on about him for so long yeah yeah Jonathan, absolutely you know i think it's there's an interesting combination here of of him getting something right and and us so many of us in a case can't speak for everybody um having having a weakness having a lack of a moral map imagination, having the lack of the kind of things that come of being in a community that has these shared principles, right? I, I mean, the, it, it's hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom. And frankly, this is where we need good philosophy. It's hard to fathom how 
different in principle, in action, uh, the society that we live in now is from the one that he's representing. And so it, 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 it has, you know, for some of us, it, it immediately gives us that sense of, oh my gosh, it has things that we're looking for. We don't know how to find them here. He's capturing it. Oh my gosh, this is so critical. But, you know, but others, others can have a sense of it, it's, this is too foreign. Therefore it's got to be fake. Mm. You know, what, 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 what is this? Where, where does it, you know, this is, he must be making this up. Part of it is we're, we're losing just a, a sense of kind of historical context Gents, I'm 55. So I'm of a, I'm of a generation now. You know, when I was a little younger, there were there absolutely were people that were of the Hannah Coulter herself, a Jaber Crow. By the way, just so everyone knows he, he, he all of his all of his characters are fictional. They're clearly rooted in experience of real life, but they're but they're all fictional. So it's that you know, in a sense, it's a kind of perfect fiction, perhaps in that way, but people of, that had spanned that age, I saw them. I saw them with my own eyes. So I can look out the window right now from sitting in the Shenandoah Valley and see a little valley within the valley over from here where 30 years ago, I bailed hay with people when in that community where when, when they knew you were bailing, they just kind of appear out of nowhere and you didn't even know how they knew you were bailing. This was just a. This this was in the 1990s. This was just a little leftover, in part because that little valley is an enclosed valley that tends to be farther away. So so people like me got this little kind of in person. Oh my gosh, what planet are these people from? That's what I experienced as a as a young man seeing that, and that 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 helped me recognize certain things were missing in my own life. Opened me to hey, I want to I want to I want to see some more of this, but. You know, what, what's in our imagination? I mean, good grief. I mean, 18-year-olds now? I, I, it's, it's, it'll be interesting for me. I don't have any direct experience to this. What would it be like? Because I teach philosophy. I don't get to do this. What would it be like to take a group of college students right now and just read Jaber Crow or Hannah Coulter with them? Memory mm -hmm. of Old Jack. I mean, take, take your pick. Um, I, I, I'm almost afraid to ask that question. Mm. Because I'm not sure there's going to be the points of connection. Will it will will it seem to them to be just kind of the glow of nostalgia and all of that? That's kind of interesting. That's nice, but why are you making such a big deal out of this book, Doctor Cutterback? I almost expect that's what I would get. Mm. Yeah. Well, it, so this question of the moral imagination. Um, you know, it reminds me of you know John Senior in the restoration of Christian culture has, has some almost bizarre things to, to say about how to introduce people to kind of medieval philosophy. And he, he, he talks about, um, you know, you know, John Senior, for those who, who, who don't know, was a was a, a professor at the um, was at the Integrated Humanities Institute. I think that's what it was, right? At the University of Kansas back in the day, which was became a hyper popular program at the time, in which he tried to introduce them to the you know the great works of of, of history, a lot of, a lot of the great books. Um, but one of the things they did a lot of was like taking kids out on hikes and doing bonfires and stuff like this. And, and he said, basically, these kids' imaginations are so impoverished that if you just give them Thomas Aquinas or give them these great works that we're trying to introduce them, 
to they have so little encounter with reality they have so little experience with reality like the stuff of that's made of matter <laughs> you know that you, you you touch with your hands and your hands get dirty and um and, and that applies to like family life as well in, in an age in which divorce is so wide widespread like you don't actually have in many cases an experience of what is a loving father what is a loving mother you know how can you even con conceptualize what uh, having a loving god is like if you haven't had a loving father to as as a temp as a template for that and so this idea that our imaginations are actually impeding the possibility to receive good things you actually cannot compute so if, if you were to read uh, Wendell Berry and you read some like Hannah Coulter who's just such a, a delightfully rich soul and you know I've known women like Hannah Coulter just good women um, and so I can I can receive that as being rooted in reality as being something that I have at least caught glimmers of in the world, whereas many people might see that and say, who is this woman who, who actually likes being at home and being a mother and just spending her days baking and taking care of the household and loving her husband? Like, what a, what a poor life. Whereas for her, it was everything and, and utterly fulfilling. Yeah. yeah. And on that, like that, well, you just literally described my grandmother who's 95 and has 69 grandkids, all of whom still visit her and a hundred and something great grandkids. And she was a farm wife who did all of those things. And she looks at her grandkids on their smartphones and, and can't figure out what in the world is so interesting on that screen when all these wonderful people are around you to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and if I may, John, you, you didn't mean to do this at all, but I just want to say, the, you know, the list of things that Anna Coulter did goes on and on, right? Yes. I mean, someone might have heard what you said and said, well, I heard baking and there was <laughs> else interesting in there. And, and just to be clear, that's one of the interesting and powerful things here is, as, as Wendell Berry does it, it's very explicit on in his essays, is, uh, for instance, I paraphrase, he has a um, a great essay on husbandry. And he notes how there is an art that corresponds to that of, of housewifery. And it's a very complex, rich art, or it should be. And one of the things that particularly is appealing to me in his, in his nonfiction that I use in my philosophy of family and household is his critique of the contemporary household it has been so emptied of life. And I, I, one of the things I also find most powerful in him corresponding to that, I won't have time to go into it in depth here, but um, his, what I take and present to my students as his account of the rise of feminism in, in, in giving, I think, an excellent understanding of what tended to lead to it. And just as a teaser here, it's, it's because the role of a woman at home became so impoverished as though what she's doing there is just some cooking right. and some cleaning, uh, as opposed to being a partner in a very rich uh, project. Right. right. So, so that 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 that's that's one of the really beautiful things. Right. Well, and that's and that's that essay that that I sent to you a number of years ago, where I I mentioned the idea that you know we have this idea that the housewife is the 1950s, and that's like the archetypal housewife watching her soap operas and hoovering the floor. When in fact, you know, you read, you know, you read something like you know uh, Kristen Lovren's daughter, for instance, you know, where you get a picture of women as kind of like dominating the the house in you know and and brilliant you know a, a brilliant woman 
could run a brilliant household that redounded on on the whole family. Um, yeah, the, the 1800s housewife gave us Hannah Coulter. The 1950s housewife gave us Betty Friedan. Mm. And for precisely that reason, I, I had one question I wanted to ask before we got to the end on, on practical advice, because I find that a lot of people, when they're reading this and they're feeling sort of this longing for something they've never known because they sense that this is where home is, this is where family is, this is where community is, but they don't know how to access it. That one practical way of looking at it is what do we have in our lives that if added to Wendell Berry's world would make it less what it is. And I've often thought that if you take uh, Heidi or Little Women or Little House on the Prairie and you put a smartphone into it, the story doesn't happen. <laughs> if you read the short stories in that distant land and you add smartphones to any of these stories, the stories simply don't happen. The conversations don't happen. They don't happen. So what do you, do you think that one practical way um, um, to, to read his stories is to say what is in our lives right now that prevent that from from organic? organically growing absolutely jonathan and and hand in hand with that um you know, looking it's a twofold project what do we have to say no to and what do we have to say yes to and that's it, it, to be frank jonathan that is my life project it's in many ways been my life project in my own home it's my life project in teaching it's my life project at my website um you know, I, I call it life crafts because the most rich and fulfilling craft is crafting a good life as a small community starting in the home. And, and what are we going to do to figure out how to do that? So, so Jonathan, you know, that's honestly, it's a, that's, I don't want to say it's an ugly question. It's a bear of a question because it's so hard. I completely agree. Add, add a cell phone, add smartphone, add smartphone and the old world implodes. Our problem, remove smartphone, different ways, ours is going to implode <laughs> because we're so dependent upon it. Or in any case, let's put it this way, remove it and you sure don't go back to the old, right? There's a, there's a number of things that we, and hey, we, we, you know, we, we can see this, especially from the husband and father viewpoint of we have to be asking in our homes, what things do we need to say no to? And I do think that that's you know, a very important question, but the no is always in view of the yes. What are we going to do to build the richness? And this is where, again, Wendell Berry has subtlety at that Arlington, circle back to that. He, he, he made a point in answer to one of the questions. He said, I have to say this again and again and again. My point to you all is not that you all need to go and live in the country and have a farm. It's, this is not the cure-all. It's not what everybody has to go do and then everyone's going to be fine. Right? And, and brilliantly important to recognize Wendell Berry has the subtlety to realize you know, that instantiation of the good life does not equal the good life. And so you got to go back and you got to get the principles behind it and then ask the question, how in our particular context are we going to be able to, to forge that? that? That's why we need one another. That's why we need to 
come together. That's why we need to be reading these things and having conversations. Let me say, you don't, I don't need to say it, but I think you'll agree. Wendell Berry certainly doesn't have all the answers. I know someone who wrote to him and asked him more for, give me the positive thing about what to do now. He, he wrote back and said, my, my place was more to tell the story of what there was and what is being lost. You're going to have to figure out what you're going to do now, mm. because that's not, that's not, as it were, mine to do. And it's not, it's not that he can't help us, but that, that's, that's something very important to bear in mind there. Well, and he does his his life and work does suggest that the answer to that question might be more radical than than we're, we're necessarily prepared to admit at first. Uh, Jonathan, I've talked a lot about the fact that, you know, here's this man, you know, who, who's never owned a computer, who writes all of his books by pencil on this farm. And, you know, you have this world full of activists who are on Twitter and on Facebook trying to change the world all day, go out and protest. And here's this guy in his cabin with his pencil who's done more to change the world for the better than, you know, 98% of these activists who, who are just busy all the time. And it goes to show that, you know, uh, for me, it's, it's such a model of what we think makes a difference uh, often isn't what makes a difference. John, that's a great, that, that, that's a great point. And I, I just, I just want to throw in here and not to sound um, a negative note, but it's, it's always about truth and reality. And that's, that's from the various approach. Um, this hasn't come up in this conversation. I have some principled disagreements with him mm -hmm. and that will just have to be a story for another day. But I just think particularly as a philosopher, I just want to say I am deeply appreciative of him. I am deeply grateful. I, I also think, I mean, ultimately to my encouragement and recommendation to those who are trying to craft a good life today, um, they're going to have to look deeper and further for certain rich principles uh, and and ways of applying them uh, than what you're simply going to find them. Just others might well disagree with this, but I'm just saying, from my opinion, with great respect for him, um, and it, Jonathan, you and I can talk about this also on, on another time too. I've written to him over the years. He's written back. We're actually in a little bit of a standing argument right now on a very important philosophical point. And no, sorry, going to have to leave that as a teaser. Can't, 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 uh, can't go into the specifics of it right now. You, so in you, any case, you really want to come back for another episode, don't you? This is this is all this is all real time. It's all it's all rich and it's all complex. So. Any All right. Case. Well, we are out of time. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Cutterback. And those who want to find out more about his work, go to life-craft.org. And uh, thanks again for joining us. Good to be with so you, much. John and Jonathan. All right. Take care.